Am I loved? Am I loved? That's one of the most profound yet gut-wrenching questions any one of us could ever ask. It's a question at the heart of so many of the stories that we've grown to love. So many of us uh, just finished watching Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. George Bailey thinks the world would be better off without him, and joy comes when he recognizes that he is a man loved by his friends. The saddest moment in A Christmas Carol, in my opinion, is when his fiancée, Scrooge's fiancée, recognizes that he loves his gold more than he loves her. Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy is largely about Anna Karenina, who can't find love from her cold husband or, ironically, even from the lover with whom she ran away. Romeo and Juliet is about a couple that would rather die together than live apart. Am I loved? It's a question that we ask ourselves. It's an important question, too. Nations rise and fall. Uh, we have now all learned pandemics come, and we're pretty sure they go. Wealth is amassed, and wealth is spent, and that's all the headlines. That's all breaking news. But, but, but none, no event is, is more important than that question. A am I loved? And, and the Bible speaks to the questions that we ask. The, the Bible doesn't address current events. It addresses the human heart. The Bible answers questions shared by all people in every age, and it answers the question, am I loved? So if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to the book, the letter of 1 John. Our text is merely the first four verses, but for the next several months, we're going to be traveling through John's letters. And John wants true believers to know that God loves them. Now, there is a sense in which God loves everyone, right? For God so loved the world in its rebellion against Him. God loves humanity. Well, that's true, but that's not the kind of love I'm talking about. Because there's another love that God has for those who are His children. They have His special love, a love reserved for them, again, as His adopted ones, a love that's found only in and through Jesus Christ. And so I'm calling this sermon series Assurance, Knowing You Know Jesus. John wants Christians to know how they can know they are Christians, how they can be certain that they are loved by God the Father. All right, so with that in mind, listen to our passage, 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
Well, I have three points. First, the always of Jesus, the always of Jesus. Second, the appearance of Jesus, the appearance of Jesus. And third, the assurance of Jesus. So the always of Jesus, the appearance of Jesus, the assurance of Jesus. And I've been praying that, that you would be loved by God. And if you are loved by God, that you would know that you are loved by God. I want you to have an assurance of God's unyielding, his undying, his never-ending, his soul-satisfying love. Three amazing letters in our Bible, pointing us in the direction of knowing that it's possible to know that God really loves you. All right, first, the always of Jesus. Now, the letter does not begin like a letter, like a, not like a normal letter. Right? There's no greeting. There's no pleasantries. Now, I assume the author, John, knew his audience very well. I assume his audience knew him very well. Uh, by the way, the author is John. The, the church has always affirmed this. Uh, he's writing to one or to several churches in Asia, modern-day Turkey. We know that John spent much of his ministry in Ephesus. Maybe he's even writing to the believers in his church in Ephesus. Uh, false teachers have infiltrated the city, the cities, and they have led many astray. And many are following this false teaching and proving themselves not to be believers, not to be Christians. They veered from the faith, and so John is responding by, by clarifying the very basics of Christianity. What does it mean to be a Christian? How can you know you are a Christian? What does it mean to have fellowship with God? How can you know you have fellowship with God? So John responds to this false teaching by clarifying the basics of the gospel. And what's interesting about verse 1 is the way it begins so forcefully, right? The way it begins so abruptly. No, dear church, I'm John. No, it begins, that which was from the beginning. I mean, it's just dramatic in, 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 at the very start. And, and, and that refers to Jesus Christ. From the beginning is a way of describing the fact that Jesus has always existed. The most dangerous man in the world in the fourth century was a man by the name of Arius. He was the pastor of the church in Alexandria. And he was a dangerous man because as a pastor, as a very popular and influential pastor, he went around proclaiming that Jesus is not God. He argued that Jesus is certainly better than any man. And he argued, in fact, that Jesus is almost God, that Jesus is like God. But he came short of arguing Jesus is God. And in fact, he was so influential in part because he wrote songs to disciple his congregation in his heresy. I don't know the, the tune to the song, but I know one of the lyrics. There was a time when Jesus was not. John disagrees. John sees things differently. John, by the way, a man who is writing in the first century who actually spent time with Jesus, affirms Jesus is God. Jesus has always existed. He is from the beginning. Now, that is not to say that he has a beginning, as Arius taught. It's simply to say that before there was anything, at the very beginning, there was Jesus, because Jesus is God. A few weeks ago, Chad Ireland delivered a message for us 
about Jesus' healing and forgiving the paralytic. If you remember, the, the religious leaders, they objected. Not so much to Jesus healing the paralytic, although I'm sure they were very jealous about that, but they objected to the fact that, that Jesus forgave. And they said to themselves, they, they, they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking and what they said, and he could have told them that he wasn't cl- trying to claim to be God by forgiving this paralytic of his sins, but Jesus did not correct them because, in fact, he was claiming to be God. Later, Jesus made this radical statement. He said, if, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Now, this is true for the Christian. We will die physically. Susie died. Ron died. Wayne died. But if you have eternal life, death is simply the beginning of perfect fullness of joy with God forever and ever. And so when the people heard Jesus say, he who follows him, Jesus, will not taste death, they scolded him for making it sound like he was better than Abraham. I mean, Abraham couldn't even offer that. And Jesus replied to them. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because it's the name of God mentioned by David a few moments ago. I am is that name Yahweh, translated or or written in your English Bibles, capital L-O-R-D. Double-click on Lord, I am, pops up. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Jesus always was. Jesus always will be. By saying Jesus is from the beginning, John is making a profound theological statement. However, he's not saying anything more than Jesus actually said, taught about himself. So verse 1 is really an introduction to this whole letter. All of 1 John is about that which was from the beginning. And notice how verse 1 ends, concerning the word of life. Now, word at the end of verse 1 could simply mean words, the message of Christianity, the facts, factoids of the gospel. You may remember how John's gospel begins, which may cause you to rethink how to understand word of life. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, John's readers knew about God's word, right? With a a word, God spoke all the stars and all the planets into existence. And last week, we looked at Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Psalm 33, verse 9. For he spoke, and it came to be. God's word is powerful. It's effective. John's readers, all the Israelites, would have, would have understood that God creates by speaking. And so what John seems to be doing is reaching back into the Old Testament understanding of the Word of God, and he says all of that power, all of that creative force of God's Word is none other than Jesus, the Word of life. That is to say, the Father and the Son 
are intimately connected. They have the same nature. Jesus was. Jesus is. Jesus always will be God. He is the Word. I love, I love reading fiction. Um, I don't think you have to love reading fiction. You know, you just don't. Uh, I love reading fiction. I love watching movies. I love getting lost in another world filled with interesting characters and plot twists. And that has its place. But when I read in the Bible, and I want you to think about this as you start your reading plans for 2021, and I know you have, all right? When I read the Bible, I'm not simply being introduced to a story that interests me. Though it often does. But I'm introduced to God who made me. That which is from the beginning. The Word. The Bible presents Jesus who is God. He is the always God. So, it's important that we start here because 1 John is about Jesus. And verse 1 makes that clear. If Jesus is God... As John is saying, then there is nothing more important than knowing Jesus. We should be eager to pursue him, to study him, to know him. So, dare I say, lay all of your other New Year's resolutions aside and commit yourself to knowing Jesus better. 1 John is a very practical letter. I'm going to be talking a lot over the next few months about us, about how we ought to live, about how we ought to walk in holiness, about the various distinguishing marks of a genuine believer. But don't lose sight of this opening paragraph. Christ must be front and center. You can be saved without an assurance of your salvation. You cannot be saved without the always Jesus, who is the only Savior. Now, maybe you aren't sure that Jesus is God. Now, I recognize in the midst of a pandemic, when we're socially distanced and have to come basically wearing masks, that uh, maybe this is not the time of our lives when non-Christians are breaking down the doors of churches to come and hear sermons like this. I recognize that. And yet, I know that a lot of you have grown up in Christian homes. A lot of you have grown up being brought to church, but may not have ever truly embraced the faith of your parents as your own faith. And again, I could be speaking to adults, and right now I can be speaking to kids. You could be here today also because you've hit rock bottom and you don't know where else to turn. Either way, you're in the right place. And if you want to know more, not only about who Jesus is, but about why, and Christians like me are so convinced that Jesus is God, I often host a small study called Christianity Explained where we walk through the very basics of Christianity. If you're interested in that, in a more personal encounter with why we believe what we believe, you can just see me at the door after the service, and we can arrange a time to have this study. Uh, I want you 
to know that you are in a place where you are free to ask questions. Maybe not while I'm preaching. That would be awkward. But at any other time, uh, ask questions, and, and, and you're not going to be judged for your doubts, uh, no matter how old you are. All right, that was the first point, the always of Jesus. Second, the appearance of Jesus. Look again at verse 1. Jesus, the always God, entered time and space, and John saw him, not just a little. John looked upon him. John heard him. John saw him. John even touched him. And therefore, John could actually testify to his identity as God and Savior. Have you ever had a brush with fame? I once rode in an elevator with John Glenn, the first American to orbit the earth. I also met Billy Graham. We shook hands. I heard them both. I saw them both. I can't be sure that I touched John Glenn, but there was no COVID, so we might have brushed one another in the elevator. I don't know. Should the day ever come when someone questions who John Glenn is, what he did, well, I can say I saw him. Should someone one day ever question whether or not Billy Graham was really that influential? I can say I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. A personal testament like that isn't everything, but it's compelling. Now, John writes as one, along with other apostles, who can bear witness to what he saw and heard and even touched. Those who doubt that Jesus is God in the flesh must tangle with what John heard, with what he saw, even with what he touched. John is what we call an eyewitness. He's establishing himself as a credible, reliable guide to Christianity. So, in college, I gave uh, my very first Christian devotional, and I remember it was about James and John leaving their nets and following Jesus when he called. They quit their jobs, and they made Jesus their life. Now, at the time, John followed Jesus because he believed that Jesus is a, is a great man. And I have no doubt that there are just great people. If they, I don't not say you quit your job for them. But there are some people that you've probably, probably met that you'd pretty much do anything they asked of you because you just respect them so much. Well, when, when, when John left his net to follow Jesus, uh, he believed Jesus was a great man. But, but later... After months of ministry and after touching the body of the resurrected Christ, John concluded Jesus is not just a great man, he's the great God. Look at verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John says Jesus appeared in human form, fully man. The, the life was made manifest. God revealed himself. He manifested himself. He appeared in the flesh. God appeared. He showed up to a sin-saturated world. And notice who God is. He is the life. Think of John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
no one comes to the Father except through me. You know, what a statement that is, right? I mean, Jesus said, I mean, if people really knew what Jesus said, <laughs> there would be a lot of people claiming to be followers of Jesus who would drop him like old laundry because the things he said were just so radical. Like, follow me and you'll never taste death. I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, it's one thing for Jesus to say, I am the way. I'm the path to the Father. It's another thing altogether for Jesus to say, I am the truth. Like me. I am the life. Jesus himself in the flesh, truth. In the flesh, life. So you can't have fellowship with God the Father without Jesus to speak in terms of the last decade, you can't be spiritual without religion. You can't be spiritual without Jesus. Jesus is not merely, he's not merely the one through whom life comes, like a necessary evil. He's not merely the one through whom life comes. We all, we all know what it's like to go to a faucet for a drink of water. Water comes through the faucet. Jesus is not the faucet. It's not the faucet we care about. It's the water. It's not just that life comes through Jesus. Jesus is the life. To know the Word is to know the life, is to know Jesus, is to know God. He's, John is laying all of this out so clearly. And so like an expert witness, John testifies to all of this. You see that there in verse 2. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testify to it. Right? He testifies that Jesus is the, the life that, that we need. And you, you need to understand that when you see that word testify, that word in Greek is where we get our English word martyr. You see, because those who testified to Jesus in the first century very often were those who were killed for believing what they testified to. You only testify to that which you believe. I mean, to testify to a lie is, you know, even in, in our day and age is a ridiculous thing. That word martyr comes from testifier. And so John opens up this letter. Maybe we'd even, even call it a mini-sermon to say, this is what I testify to. This is a truth I am ready to die for. Now, what are we to make of all of this? You have to believe that you are or were spiritually dead in need of life. Right, to really grasp the significance of the appearance of Jesus, you've got to believe that either you are right now or you were spiritually dead in need of life. And let's face it, most people don't agree with this. Most people see themselves as perfectly fine. If they've got any problems, it's nothing a vacation won't fix, a few friends, a few dollars, a new spouse, right, the end of COVID. You know, we've got our problems, but it's not something that we can't somehow fix. Very few people, very few people raise their hand and admit, aha, I'm the problem. It's just not common. 
that takes the kind of humility that we don't see very much of. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Look, the Bible teaches that we're born spiritually dead. We are born lifeless, lifeless. We are not sick people who need a vaccine to heal us. We are dead people who need the word of life to revive us, to give us life, to make us alive, to resurrect us. So if Jesus is your life, it's because you believed John's testimony. You've put your faith in Jesus, in his death, in his resurrection. You've trusted him. The always God who appeared in the flesh and died in your place. So see your need. Turn to him. Put your faith in him. Trust him. Our confidence in this gospel is not based on a sentimental feeling, but on the historical reality of Jesus. Right? The, the Bible is not mythology. Guys, Christmas is confusing because for every uh, video or movie that is attempting to present like the true meaning of Christian, you've got a thousand movies that are fiction, right? Like the gal in New York who moves to the small town to find the love of her life, okay? I'm not saying that that never happens, but that's Hallmark fiction. Uh, I'm not even going to get into Santa right now. I'm just, I'm saying that, that our confidence in the gospel is not based upon sort of sentimental feelings conjured up by individuals who know how we tick. Our, our confidence in the gospel is rooted in the historical reality of Jesus Christ. The Bible is 66 different books, but they're all either describing, explaining, or applying real, actual, historical events. That's what the Bible is. And so it's why John goes out of his way to say more than once, he heard, he saw, he touched Jesus. And then John wrote down what we need to know. So these authors, like John, are reliable, historic eyewitnesses to what really happened. You can assess the Bible, the truthfulness of the Bible, the usefulness of the Bible, the way you would assess any other bit of news. Does it come from a trustworthy source? That's what John is doing. You can decide for yourself. You know, you, you, just, you get to decide, you know, is John a reliable witness? Is he a trustworthy guy? You just need to know that's how he's presenting himself. Right? He's presenting himself to you, saying, hey, this is why I'm saying what I'm saying. Does it come from a, a trustworthy source? Does, the, does this news make sense of the world in which I live? You get to decide, you know, whether or not this is a better explainer of current events, even though it doesn't address current events directly, but you get to decide whether this word is a better explainer of current events than CNN or Fox. You get to decide. D does this accurately not just reflect, but explain the world that I live in? 
right? We, we assess the Bible the way we assess any other bit of news, any other bit of history. And the Bible is reliable history. And it is the mission, it is the mission of our church to proclaim this news. That's, that's what we do individually, pastorally, corporately. That's our job description. At Mount Vernon, we are unapologetically committed to proclaiming Scripture, in large part because this is the pattern of ministry we find throughout the New Testament. It's a ministry of preaching the Word, of telling other people about Jesus. Like a mailman delivering the mail, we deliver the news, news you can trust 24-7 to God's people and to anyone who will listen. Twice, John indicates he came to proclaim Jesus. Verse 2, proclaim to you the eternal life. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Proclamation. It's, it's what we do. Now, to be clear, when I proclaim the word, the life, I am proclaiming a person. I think of Colossians 1.28, where Paul writes, Him we proclaim. Jesus Christ. I proclaim Christ. He preached Jesus. If you come to Mount Vernon every Sunday over the course of this next year, which my guess is not going to happen because like COVID's going to go away and you're going to go away too on vacation, maybe for a long time. But if you don't do that, 52 sermons in 2021. My goal in these sermons is not that you come to know your Bible better. My goal is not that you become a theological expert. My goal is not that you get to know me better, as I tell great stories about riding in the elevator with John Glenn. My goal is that you would know Jesus Christ, that you'd know him more. And oh, if I could just wave a wand and make you know Jesus better. It's not the way things work. It's not the way God designed it. God designed it this way. We proclaim with words. And then God has to work. The Holy Spirit has to work applying this word to your heart so that you know Jesus. Maybe for the first time in your life. Maybe you've never come to a saving knowledge of Christ. But even if you have so that you know him deeply and more intimately, and so that you can say, you can tell other people, I love my church. I love learning more about the Bible. It's so great. I get to learn about people like Arius. But more than anything, I get to know Jesus. That's what we need. So perhaps this year you'll read the passage on Saturday night. Uh, it's printed here. All the, all the sermons are, are printed right here in the pew card in front of you. I mean, there's a whole list of them. And, like, they're short texts this, you know, winter. Take advantage of that. Maybe you'll put this on your fridge or, like, take a photo of it and put it on your eye thing. And on Saturday night, you'll read the passage. But you won't just read it. You'll pray, God, would you use would you, would you make sure that whoever's preaching is preaching truth? I want God's word. I don't want Aaron's stories. 
And would you help me know you better? The mission of the church is to lay a feast of God's word before God's people. You must come and eat if you want to know this Jesus better. This Jesus who appeared in the flesh to rescue us from our sins. The always of Jesus, the appearance of Jesus. Third, the assurance of Jesus. Now, something amazing happens when Jesus is proclaimed. Right? Something amazing happens when Jesus is proclaimed. Sinners are saved and they grow in their assurance. They grow in their assurance that Jesus isn't isn't merely God, but he's their God. They grow in their assurance that Jesus is their God. And so verses 3 and 4 of 1 John 1 may be some of the sweetest verses in the New Testament, maybe the Bible. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. And with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What does John want from his readers? What does he want from his readers? You might say, as a, as a teacher, you might say, well, I want my audience to pay attention. Um, I want my audience to, to grow. I want them to change. Well, here it's not so much what he wants from his audience. It's really what he wants for them. He doesn't want them to be deceived. He doesn't want them to stray from the truth. He doesn't want them to have fellowship with the world. No, he wants them to have fellowship with the body of Christ and with the Father and with the Son. Now, by the way, when I look at verse 3, I've read 1 John, I mean, hundreds of times. For young believers, it's one of the first books, you know, we go to, I don't know, Philippians, 1 John. I mean, if there's a book we've read a lot, it's 1 John. I've read it, it just must be hundreds of times. But verse 3 never captured my attention the way it did this past week, where it's so clear, he, he writes, so that you too may have fellowship with, with us. Like, who's the us? John's talking about him, and he's talking about believers. He's talking about the local church. So I'm writing all this stuff. I'm proclaiming this stuff about Jesus, who was from the beginning, the one I've seen and heard and touched, so that you may have fellowship with us. He wants all of his readers to have fellowship, communion, unity, a shared vision, a shared purpose, one with each other. And then verse 4 is the fruit of that fellowship, so that, you know, your joy will be complete. John opens, and really he closes his, his letter by describing or explaining the purpose of it, the purpose of his preaching. Right in 1 John 1, 3, it's a word of assurance. I'm writing this so that you may have fellowship with us. I want you to, I want you to, to, to have, have unity with the other believers. I want you to know you're part of the body. And look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. He ends the letter by saying, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. 
right? So at the very beginning, I write these things so that you would have fellowship with the body. I write these things so that you may know you have eternal life. These two verses go together. They're parallel. They're complementary. Having fellowship with the body of Christ, the local church, is one way we can know we have present tense assurance of eternal life. No fellowship, no assurance. Now, this does not for a second mean that church membership is a source of everlasting life. Right? I'm not saying that, neither is John. It does mean that the assurance we have of everlasting life cannot be separated from our participation in, our union with, our fellowship in the body of Christ, the local church. And maybe you're thinking, well, how can this be the case? How in the world could it be so important to lock arms with other believers in fellowship? Look again at verse 3. So that you too may have fellowship with us. That's the church. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship with each other and fellowship with God go together. I mean, John is just so clear. Uh, have you ever played tug of war? Ah, three of you. Good, good. Very interactive congregation. Have you ever played tug of war? Yeah, yeah, sure. All right, so you hold tightly to a rope, okay? Behind you is a friend also holding tightly to a rope, unless you're the first in, in line, probably in front of you is another friend holding tightly to the same rope. Now, you're actually not touching one another, ideally, right? You're holding on to, to the rope. You're all together, united in, in one mission. It's not the kindest of missions, right? You want to pull them into the mud, right? But in a sense, you've got fellowship, right? But that fellowship with your teammates, that fellowship uh, is determined by your relationship, not really to one another, but it's determined by your relationship to the rope. Because the guy in the middle who says, I love you guys, but doesn't hold and pull on the rope is going to get kicked off the team. Right? It doesn't matter that he's having some sentimental feeling of unity. The unity comes from holding to and pulling back on the rope. The rope binds you together. Right? The rope makes you one. Friends, that's what John is teaching here. It's important we love one another. It's important we serve one another. It's important we exhort one another to sound doctrine and practical holiness. We're going to talk a lot about that over the course of the next few months. But the source of our unity, what binds us together, is not our holiness. As great as holiness is, it's not finally our mutual love as much as we ought to love one another. The source of our unity is always our Savior to whom we cling and through whom we find fellowship both with Him and with His Heavenly Father. The Father and the Son are the rope binding us together. I love how Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones described fellowship with God. What does it mean that God is the rope to whom we cling? 
Well, that's my question. He didn't use the illustration of the rope. But this is what he said in answer to the basic question. It means, obviously, and a necessity, that we have come to know God. God is no longer a stranger, somewhere away in the heavens. He is no longer some stray force or power somewhere, some supreme energy. God is no longer some potentate or lawgiver, far removed and away from us. God is now someone whom we know, someone we know personally, someone we love, and someone who loves us. One of the reasons that I'm a pastor is because long ago I fell in love with the local church. Now, I'd loved Jesus before then, but if I'm going to be honest about why I'm a pastor, it's because I, I fell in love with the church. I saw how central the church is to my own sanctification, to my own discipleship, my own spiritual growth, my own assurance of salvation, and I wanted God to use me to help others experience the same fellowship with other believers. But we need to be careful because our fellowship with one another is only as rich as our fellowship with God is deep. So for those of you coming to the discipling class, and, and, and I hope you do, and like Dustin and David, it's not that I don't want people to go to the Romans class. It's just that people already love Romans. Like Romans doesn't need me to invite anybody to it. It's Romans. All right? But a class on discipling, I don't know if that necessarily is floating everybody's boat. All right? So those of you who make your way, not next week, because next week we're all together talking about Isaiah, thinking about Isaiah. But when you go to that disciple-making class, you need to understand that the most important thing about disciple-making is not something Danny and Evan are probably going to talk about very much. And that's that it all begins with fellowship with God. To draw near the body of Christ, you must first and always be drawing near to the head, to Christ. Focus on the church, and you will find loneliness and disappointment. Focus on Christ, and you will find fellowship and joy and assurance of faith. Right, so to apply this, to end this, I want to ask you to do two things. All right, first, would you assess your relationship with the local church? If you remember Mount Vernon, I'm asking you to assess your relationship with Mount Vernon. I know for those of you watching, uh, presumably from home, that that's a hard thing to do right now. But I, I want you to do it any, anyway. Assess your relationship with the local church. Time and time again, I've said that we want every member of Mount Vernon to be personally, regularly, and deliberately helping another believer grow in Christ-likeness. Who is that in your life? Who are you reaching out to in order to encourage? Are you investing in someone so that he or she will grow in Christ-likeness? Now, notice I did not ask who's investing in you. We all, we all want that. Um, we've got less control over that. We have more control over who we're investing in. All of us can reach out to someone else in some form or fashion. And if you are struggling in this area in any way, we have elders here to help you. 
I'm here to help you. May 2021 be a year where your relationship with your brothers and sisters at Mount Vernon grows deeper and stronger. And I hope that there's a fervency in that fight for fellowship with the satanic attack against it we've been experiencing throughout most of 2020 and into the headwaters of 2021. In light of 1 John 1, 3, would you assess your relationship with Mount Vernon? Second, would you affirm Jesus is the life? And not just the life, but your life. And I'm certainly speaking to Christians here. As important as people are, our assurance is not found in others. Our assurance is rooted in the historical reality of a Savior who lived the life we were supposed to live, only to die a horrific death, an unjust death, a death in the place of sinners like us. And he did this out of love. He did it out of love for us, the Father's love for us. So I began the sermon by asserting one of life's most important questions is, am I loved? And here's the only good answer, in Christ I am. In Christ I have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son, the always, the one who appeared, the one in whom I can have assurance of my salvation. You can know you're loved only if you're in Christ. The essence of the Christian life is not us knowing one another. The heart of the gospel is not church community. What matters most of all is fellowship with the Father and the Son. What matters most of all is that you have a real, I like to call it day-by-day -day relationship with God. Jesus, who appeared in the flesh, who is your only hope of Christian assurance. Jesus is the life, not me, not the church, not anything or anyone else, only Jesus. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for 1 John. We thank you for, uh, we thank you for all of the Bible, but what an amazing letter this is, laying out for us what it looks like to be a Christian so clearly and so simply. We do pray that we would long not merely to understand the mechanics of Christianity, but in it all, through it all, to know him who was from the beginning, whom John heard and saw, looked upon and touched, testified to, and now to this day proclaims through his writings, may we together, your people, know Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen.